The Guardian. Three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. Liftoff. Americans return to space as Discovery clears the tower. On the 24th of April 1990, NASA's space shuttle Discovery blasted off from Florida in the United States, carrying the Hubble Space Telescope. In the intervening 30 years, Hubble has been a vanguard for astronomical exploration, giving us a deep and brilliant view into our cosmos. The list of scientific things it's done and how it's changed our understanding of the universe is just, it's a hugely long list. Astronomers thought black holes were, we're not quite sure where they were or how rare they were, and they've now found they're at the core of almost every galaxy. Also on that shuttle back in 1990 was astronaut Catherine Sullivan. To get to see the Earth from that vantage point myself, instead of just admiring pictures that other astronauts had taken, that was just irresistible. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Do you, do you fly planes now? I do fly. I have a small airplane of my own. Really? Yeah. Where do you like to fly? Well, it's a little two-seat, basically airborne version of sports car. So it's just for kind of noodling around the countryside or doing little little bits of flips or rolls just for fun. And who do you take with you in the other seat? Oh, whatever willing soul has part of a day free and wants to go sightsee or turn upside down a little bit. <laughs> Amazing. It's such a cool hobby. <laughs> it's a very cool hobby. Earlier this year, marking Hubble's 30th anniversary, Kathy Sullivan joined our science correspondent Hannah Devlin in the studio to discuss her new book following her journey as an astronaut alongside Hubble and its scientific achievements. Kathy, you're arguably most famous for being the first American woman to walk in space. So I just wanted to take you back to that moment and ask what it was like when you first stuck your head, or maybe it was your feet that came out, out of the hatch on the very first spacewalk. It was by head, actually. Walk is not the right verb for what we did in spacesuits around the space shuttle. It was rather more like swimming. So when you're coming out of the hatch, you're moving with your hands, your head comes first. And in the moment, obviously, the first thing I was paying attention to was hook up your tether and be very careful about this. But just a minute or two into that process, our our boss, Commander Bob Crippen, he ordered us to stop for a moment and you know, look away from the business end of things and take in the fact that we were not actually this time in one of the large water tanks where we had practiced so much. And I'm forever grateful that he wanted us to stop there and just really look around and observe that there are no scuba divers this time around. It, it, that really is the Earth, and you really are doing this. And then off we went back in to being focused on our job. And just in that little moment that you had to enjoy it for yourself, what went through your head? Probably something along the lines of, uh, well, thank heavens no one found some little thing that kept us from coming outside. Probably followed swiftly by, please don't let me screw anything up. (laughs) Your new book, Handprints on Hubble, chronicles your journey and your second mission and the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. Could you just tell us a bit about the importance scientific importance of that mission? The list of scientific things it's done and how it's changed our understanding of the universe is just, it's a hugely long list. Astronomers thought black holes were, we're not quite sure where they were or how rare they were, and they've now found they're at the core of almost every galaxy. It's let us watch comets crashing into Jupiter to understand both how comets function in the atmosphere of Jupiter. It's let us have views of all the planets in our solar system that are 
you know, as close to as good as having a flyby mission go by. It's reconfirmed and, and given more precision to the age of the universe by being able to look so much further back in time at faint stars and objects. And it's given a much more precise understanding of the rate at which the universe is expanding, like by about a factor of 10 improvement on that. And Hubble actually was the first telescope that spotted a planet around another star. So, you know, something like Earth or Jupiter or Saturn, but around not our sun. There are now thousands of those that have been spotted by other telescopes, but Hubble led the way on that as well. We're going to return to the spacewalk and Hubble, but um, I just wanted to take you back even further first. And in your book, you quote your first ever interview question. You sat there in front of George Abbey, head of shuttle flights crew at NASA, and he said, tell us about yourself, start with high school. I wanted to take you back even further and ask, start with childhood. Were you into space? Were you excited about rockets and the stars? I was into maps and sort of any adventurous story. So in my early years, you know, Jacques Cousteau was on television, uh, the Mercury and then Gemini and then Apollo astronauts are in the United States opening up the space frontier. And, and all of that, the fact that you, you can imagine something that's never been done before and have the means of making it real, that was fascinating. The adventurousness of what they were doing. There, there was a there was a daring that was not just daredevil daring, but a boldness to what they were doing. It just settled into me that if some people are somehow have these incredibly cool lives, and what stuck with me was, I really want to find a way that I get that kind of life. The how-to, or the what, much less what the job label would be. Um, I didn't think much about it. I didn't really worry much about it. It was more sort of a sense of. There, I, I know a clear direction I want to steer towards, and step by step, bit by bit, I'll be looking for ways that I can keep moving in that direction. You studied oceanography at university. I wondered if that was inspired by Jacques Cousteau or whether it was the ability to have those adventures and go out exploring the Earth. Yeah, it was much more the latter. I actually started university and chose my university based on the strength of their language program because my first theory of how to get that life was to bank on a talent I have for foreign languages. Uh, when I got to university, I was compelled to take three science classes, and two of them were basically elements of oceanography. And so now I not only had the Jacques Cousteau uh, role model, if you will, on my television screen, I had two much younger, very dynamic, very personable professors right there in front of me who were living that kind of life. And every weekend, dragging us out into the field with them and making us young freshman students, giving us a taste at least of that life. And so then I keyed on, in on them and said, well, this seems to be a good, people are buying them airplane tickets to go to interesting places. And they can, they can seem to be able to walk out on any piece of shoreline and decode uh, you know, read the landscape, read the oceanscape, understand what's happening, find interesting things, find interesting questions. Uh, so it really was those two professors that turned the corner for me. You've talked about your passion for, you know, the oceans. How did that lead you to want to leave the Earth and go into space? I was not at all building my graduate work or my career plans around uh, the astronaut selection. It was a pop-up opportunity I had not been paying any attention to. But when I thought about the comparison 
and recognized the linkage between the kind of expeditionary work at sea that I had been doing and what was, in essence, this new research vessel called a space shuttle that NASA was building. Um, I loved going to sea. I was good at the expedition planning and operations, really enjoyed that part of my oceanographic work most of all. Um, I think at the end, a novel dimension of exploration uh, won out, but the, the key factor was if I managed to get accepted against all of the odds from thousands of people, uh, to get to see the Earth from that vantage point myself instead of just admiring pictures that other astronauts had taken, that was just irresistible. Having grown up with Hubble being there, it's kind of easy to forget that it made or it contributed all these discoveries. It was a very uh, anticipated mission. It had been a long time in the making. It must have been an exciting assignment to get. But was there any bit of you that was a bit nervous as well about, you know, deploying it correctly? We were certainly all on high alert about the... Uh about both the really unique opportunity. It was in the list of cargoes that the shuttle was carrying in those days. It was a standout. It was clearly unique and the, the potential value to astronomy but to the wider public because we all love to look at cool pictures of the stars. So I think we all appreciated that. And, and not that anybody is ever cavalier about a less dramatic mission, uh, but yes, it, I think both the privilege and responsibility uh, weighed on us all very very heavily. So after having dedicated all this time understanding how Hubble works, working on deploying it, when you came back, NASA realised that there was a problem with the shape of the mirror, making the images blurry. And some news outlets called this NASA's billion-dollar blunder. How did you feel when you saw this and, and what happened next? Yeah, it was a shocking discovery. I mean, all of us on the crew, of course, were eager to see what we thought would be a glorious first light image. And weeks later, after lots of engineering that was trying to not believe that the mirror was actually blurry, you finally had to conclude the mirror is wrong. It's just wrong. By the way, it's it's not wrong by a lot. It's a minuscule error. If you take a page from a hardcover book and split that page into about 40 different layers, the error is as big as one of those 40 layers. It's tiny, but big enough to be devastating. Um, and the media was horribly unkind, and all the late-night talk show hosts and all the comedians were just having a field day. There were, it became the blunder of the century in movies, and it was, you know, it was painful to see that being ridiculed everywhere, knowing how glorious a machine it was meant to be. Um, so yeah, I think, well, we, you're disappointed and being the kind of people we are, they're sort of, okay, this is awful, what do we do? You're not gonna just go crawl under the desk and cry about it, what do we do about it? Um, I was already moving off into assignment on another space mission, so I did not get to be a direct uh, participant in figuring out how to fix it, but uh, clever engineers, as they will do, uh, you know, racked their brains and came up with a variety of ideas, finally one of which uh, solved the problem by essentially putting, uh, let's call it contact lenses. It's not not transparent lenses like my eyeglasses, mirrors in this case, but the same idea. The, the light bouncing off the mirror is now bad light, and so I want to stick some corrective optics in between the mirror and the instruments. Uh, so I'm going to take that bad light and turn it back into good light. Uh, that worked. I mean, to, 
the saving grace in this horrible blunder was that it, the mistake was also a very precise mistake. So you can make a very precise calculation of what sorts of mirrors you would need to fix it. Then you just had to figure out how do I get those mirrors right smack into the center of the telescope where the light beam is. Uh, and that's where the fact that Hubble had been built from the beginning to be maintainable paid its first big dividend. Was that something that has paid further dividends as time's gone forward? I mean, you've mentioned how long-lived Hubble was. Has that, as time has gone on, allowed other things to be added on, allowed Hubble to evolve in what its capabilities were? It definitely has. And it's another one of the things that sets Hubble very much apart from any other scientific satellite. Uh, You can fix things that have broken or been done badly like the mirror. But as importantly, maybe even more importantly, as technology advances like detectors and cameras and sensors, as it advances over 15 or 20 or 30 years, you don't have to leave Hubble locked into 1970s. You can keep moving it forward. So the telescope up there today is probably about a thousand times better instrument than the one that we threw overboard in 1990. Every camera and detector is is better resolution and better sensitivity. The solar arrays are about 30% smaller, but produce 20% more power than the first ones. The tape recorders and operating electronics are all higher reliability, higher performance and throughput. All of that has continued to evolve over those 30 years. No other scientific satellite has ever done that. I mean, we've seen, you know, since then, uh, a sort of evolution of what we're able to do in space and looking forward to the plans for returning to the moon. There's a lot of focus on habitability and being able to you know, really step up the complexity of what we're able to achieve. Is is that something that you're sort of, you still follow closely and are there particular things you're excited about seeing in the future? I follow it fairly closely, and it's another place where Hubble is, is germane, because Hubble, at the time we put Hubble into orbit and the uh, fateful discovery was made that it had blurry vision, at about that same time, NASA was just beginning to get realistic about what the burden would be to build a space station and how regularly spacewalks would have to happen and how ambitious and complex they would have to be. Up until the time we put Hubble in orbit, There was almost a reluctance to send people outside in spacesuits. It's just another dimension of risk. Hubble really was the first hard-nosed forcing function that pushed NASA to realize you've got to get, you've got to get just about routine about this. You've got to be able to do like four or five spacewalks per shuttle flight, not two. Uh, They've got to be able to be quite long and ambitious and complex. So Hubble kind of broke down those barriers and opened the way to the scale and complexity of spacewalking that you see around space station today. And and that, I think, is the uh, the second paving stone that makes way for what you're talking about. If you really go back to the moon or off to Mars, donning a spacesuit and going outside of a craft or outside of a habitat, has it's got to be part of the everyday operation and everyday work. Again, not that you do it cavalierly or you know, dangerously, but it's got to be something you regularly do with confidence and good operating assurance. And Hubble really kicked that off. You describe yourself as being part of the first generation of the space age. What would you like to see 
I mean, you just mentioned something that you maybe like to see slightly differently, but what would you like to see for the next generation? Where should we be going? Where should the focus be on space exploration today? I'd like to see the next generation of uh, spacefarers uh, have the kind of bold opportunity that uh, launched the era that I watched and was part of. Uh, and so if the, anyone would ever put me in charge, I would say the goal should be Mars because it is that much more demanding. It should be Mars with people because that pushes a whole raft of scientific knowledge and technologies that I am entirely confident would pay huge dividends in healthcare and, and medicine here on Earth. So set, it, set that as the target destination, set a deliberately ambitious timetable. I think that kind of a daring, bold goal would be a huge magnet for young talent back into the science and technology professions. Uh, as I say, I'm confident it would lead to knowledge advances and technical breakthroughs that for the next 30 years after the Mars landing would be percolating through our daily life in countless really beneficial ways. That was Hannah Devlin speaking to retired astronaut Kathy Sullivan, who just a few weeks ago also became the first woman to reach the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench, the deepest known point in the ocean, seven miles below the surface. You can find a link to her book, Handprints on Hubble, on the podcast page at theguardian.com. We'll be back next week. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.